0: Ladies
1: and gentlemen, children of all ages, the panel of peril is proud to present the producers, featuring spoilers galore.
0: So sit back and enjoy the show.
2: This is Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends Dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then compete to improve them. I'm your host, Craig, and this week's movie is Mel Brooks' 1967 crime comedy classic, The Producers! So, peril pals, go to work, make the checkouts of cash, and let's get diabolical. Welcome to this week's episode. As host for this week, I'm the creative accountant of the panel of peril, who will compete against me at the close of the show in a bid to become the world's most notorious producer, as we each try to come up with the best alternative show for the movie villain of the week, before we vote to name this week's most diabolical. As ever, I'm joined by three Broadway moguls. Please introduce yourselves and tell me, what is your favourite flop?
3: Hello, Cinemaster here. I would say we've we've covered a few flops already on the pod, but I would say one of my favourites is Kingdom of Heaven by Ridley Scott. Oh yeah,
2: director's cut though.
3: Yeah. Oh, director's cut. Yeah, it got a bit panned at the time and stuff, but then obviously, old uh, Ridley releases director's cut and squared everything away for the better. And it's a, a fantastic movie with lots of excellent bits in, and I'm sure probably one of us will. Pick it eventually, some way down the road
4: Almost certainly Hello Gazza <laughs> My favourite flop is William Friedkin's Sorcerer The driving a load of uh, nitroglycerin Across a harsh jungle terrain Movie Excellent, yeah, Sorcerer is incredible mm. How did it do at the box office? Not good, not good It's only recently been reclaimed in about the last 10 years I believe
2: Or rediscovered rather than reclaimed. All right. That's excellent. You haven't seen it? Mm. Do it. Okay, Ben.
1: Hi, Ben here. And my favorite flop is the Fosbury.
2: Ah. Very good. Uh, he said flip on whatsapp ah. Pals, and I told him <laughs> he better buck up his fucking ideas that's what I told him
1: we've covered my favourite flop my genuine one I think it was my answer for last week's question as well it's gentleman broncos but another hmm. one I have a lot of love for is the adventures of baron Munchausen," directed yeah. by terry gilliam it was hmm. a 40 odd million dollar budget and it made about 8 million at the cinema yeah, it's great. I've got a lot of love for it. It's got Eric yeah. Idle
2: in it. Uma Thurman, was in the producer's musical. Yeah.
1: Oliver Reed,
2: mm. Robin Williams. Yeah, it's cracking. What's the name of the, the guy who plays Munchausen? He's the well-manicured man from The X-Files.
1: Is it John Neville?
2: Yes, John Neville, yeah. Well-manicured John Neville. And as for me, my favourite flop is The King of Comedy, the Martin Scorsese film. Oh, good. Very good. She had a budget of $19 million and made a poultry $2.5 Jesus. Have you
4: seen his recent TikTok with his daughter? Yes. Still, yeah, it's great, still quite it? bitter about it being a flop now. I would be. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good film. <laughs> it's
2: brilliant. I haven't seen it yet. I will. Yeah. Oh, well, do it. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah.
1: It was on my list of top flops as well. So was the Shawshank Redemption, but I think what it's gone yeah. on to do has made it surpass flop status?
2: No, I think it still counts. It was a flop at the box office is is really what I meant with that question. Yeah. Because The Producers not only is about a flop, but also was a flop. But Mm -hmm. we'll get on to that.
0: Yeah,
2: right. Mm. Now, as The Producers is something of a departure for our show, in that it doesn't have a clearly defined villain, I thought it would be appropriate to introduce a new segment, which I'm calling Two Hits and a Flop. I'll share three literary-themed facts relating to the producers two of which will be true and one false and all you need to do is spot the false one so number one the name leopold bloom comes from the protagonist of the james joyce novel ulysses number two in the scene where max and leo are sifting through a large pile of scripts looking for a surefire flop max reads the opening Gregor Samsa awoke one morning to find he'd been transformed into a gigantic cockroach, which is the opening of the novel The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. And number three. Three full days were shot with Karl Reiner in the role of Max Bialystok, but Reiner fell out with first-time director Brooks after insisting that his character should be noisily eating cashew nuts in every scene, a detail he loved in the Henrik Sinkermick's novel Quo Vadis. So, one of those... Ain't true. What do you reckon, Cinemaster?
3: Well, I have read part of Ulysses a while ago, and I'm just trying to rack my brains about Leopold Bloom being in it or not. You watched Ulysses, the cartoon from the 80s.
2: That's what you watched. You heard the song Ulysses by Franz Ferdinand. Uh, That's what happened.
3: I don't know why I deserve this kind of treatment. (laughs) Because we love you, it's affectionate.
4: You shouldn't have gone on holiday.
2: <laughs> You're the reincarnation of President Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, he had past life regression hypnotherapy. Was he a president? I think so. No, was he I the head of the uh, the Southern Army? <laughs> <laughs> the, the true president. <laughs>
1: well, you've shown your true
3: colours.
2: I would just really like the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Whoever he was, some kind. Uh,
3: yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> they named a tank after him, didn't they? Did they? In the World War Two, yeah, there was a, the Panzer. No, the
2: Panzer.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that was his nickname, Ulysses
2: Panzer Grant. <laughs> <laughs> he was going mincing around the battlefield. <laughs>
0: <sighs>
4: I'm going to say, yeah, it's going to be the Ulysses one. Okay. And Gaz, what about you? One, two, or three? Well, the only literary reference I have is I've actually read Metamorphosis by Kafka, and that is correct. Good that job. That is the opening line. So the false one, I'm just going to go for, to be different from Cinemaster, I'll say number three, which I don't recall what it was, but I'll say number three.
2: All right, so <laughs> Gaz giving Ben a bit of a leg up there by claiming that he's read <laughs> Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka and he knows what the opening line is
0: well
1: I, I have read Metamorphosis but I can't remember if that is the opening line I know it's a line that's in
3: it whether or not it's the opening line, you didn't read *Metamorphosis*. You went to Pala. That's what you did.
2: I've never heard you once use the word Kafkaesque to describe anything. So I don't believe that you've read anything.
1: No, I don't. I don't flaunt <laughs> it. I say it in my mind and think it, but I never, never tell anyone what I'm thinking.
2: It's not actually about Franz Kafka, anyway.
1: <laughs> I'm going to say two. I think you've twisted two somehow.
2: Okay, so the correct answer in that it is a false fact, is number three, Carl oh, Reiner was oh, never uh, Max Bialstock at any point. And far as I know, he's never fallen out with uh, Mel Brooks because they, they just hate each other already. Oh, do they? <laughs> that's a shame. No, that's uh, it's a joke that he's made about Carl Reiner. They're, they're very good friends. Ah, good. <laughs> so actually, not only does the name Leopold Bloom come from the protagonist of the James Joyce novel, Ulysses. But Zero Mustel played Leopold Bloom in a stage adaptation of Ulysses. So, quite interesting.
1: Is that why he was cast? You already had experience with the name. (laughs) Well, he
2: didn't play Leopold, he played Max. Interesting, though. Time now to delve into this week's film. The legendary Mel Brooks first conceived of a novel chronicling the production of an intentional flop following his experience working on the musical All American for which Brooks wrote the book and which was met with mixed reviews. When asked by Playboy reporter Larry Siegel at a press conference what he'd be doing next, Brooks quipped springtime for Hitler, a gag that later took root in his imagination. Having observed the lavish lifestyle of real-life producers he knew to have put on a number of unsuccessful plays Brooks now had the seeds of a story, and in another New York producer known for wooing elderly socialites in order to secure financing for his plays, he had a template for his main character. Finding his style too dialogue-heavy for the form, Brooks abandoned the novel and considered a play before settling on the more versatile medium of motion picture. Brooks won an Oscar for his screenplay, and made his big-screen directorial debut with The Producers. The movie was, ironically, a box office flop, but later became a cult classic, spawning its own Broadway adaptation, a further film adaptation of the Broadway adaptation, and a glorious pastiche in the form of the fourth season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. But what did the panel of Peril make of it? Uh, Let's go with Cinemaster first.
3: Obviously, I've seen this film a few times. It's been a while since I saw it last time,
2: but I love it, yeah. It's another
3: one of those films that's really got some fantastic characters that make the film rather than the actual sort of plot itself. These crazy, off-the-wall characters are still crazy now. (laughs) You think uh, there's certain elements of the film that aren't as shocking anymore. Being based on Hitler and the Third Reich and all that and the Nazis, it's not as shocking as probably as it was in the late 60s. Mm. When the memories of war were still quite fresh, I think if you went for it these days, you'd probably have to go a lot harder. But then even in its current form, if you try to reproduce something like that, you'd probably face uh, some big hurdles and some certain abuse. But yeah, I, I, I really love it. I enjoyed the updated version of it in 2005, I think. Mm. I don't know a single person that doesn't like Gene Wilder and think he's an absolute genius. Yeah. Um, in all the films he does, to be honest. And I just shocked you? I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like Jim Wilder. It's up there with Rocky Horror that it's, it, you can tell it had a lot of power and still holds a lot of power. Mm. And it paved the way for so much, probably including Rocky Horror. So yeah, its influence still goes, what, 56 years after it was released? So still a great film.
2: Good maths, thank you. And since Gaz is butting in, Interesting to hear Cinemaster there say this film is potentially more about the characters than the plot. Do you agree? I don't think I do. The characters are
4: incredibly strong and tremendously formed by all of the lead actors, Max Bialistar, Mm. Leo Bloom, LSD, the Swedish secretary, whose name I got, is it Ulla?
3: Yeah, Uh, Franz Liebkind.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Every character is a standout, (laughs) but equally the plot is central it's the opening credits isn't it him trying to con Mm. money out of wealthy old biddies it's not the most complex plot but it is absolutely from start to finish about the plot and the gags are draped across it non-stop i'm not as much of a mel brooks fan as you three guys Mm. i know space balls and various (laughs) (laughs) various of the brooks (laughs) you're fans of i i never really have been i'm not a big fan of space balls yeah well, I'm just sort of ignorant of Mel Brooks's work, I suppose is the best way of putting it. And I enjoyed the producers the first time around watching it earlier this week, and then I rewatched it today, and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I think with the benefit of not having to make notes, yeah, I loved it. Gene Wilder is absolutely fantastic. Zero Mostel is fantastic. Yeah, I yeah. don't know his name, but the guy who plays LSD is just fucking hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it rightly holds its place as, is it the fourth best comedy of all time in the American Film Institute's charts? Is it? Yeah, it, it's brilliant. It's high on that chart.
2: Yeah, no, I'm glad you like it. And I agree, as I say, not a huge fan of Spaceballs. I think this and Blazing Saddles are exemplary. They're incredible, both of them. But his other stuff... I think it's very hit and miss. I haven't seen Young Frankenstein ever, which I should get around to doing. Oh, that's
3: great. That's great, yeah. Uh,
2: Nor have I seen Dracula Dead and Loving It.
3: That's good as well. That's uh, (laughs) Leslie Nielsen, isn't it? Yeah. And Robin Hood Men in Tights. That's pretty
4: good. Yes. (laughs) Men in Tights is good, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's pretty good. I've
4: seen that. That may be the only other Mel Brooks film I've seen. I've seen The Elephant Man, which he produced
2: david lynch directed
0: yeah, ah.
4: yeah
2: but i uh, i did not get on with space balls i think it's just goofy as fuck and not that funny but uh, maybe <laughs> i'll warm to it when we inevitably do it again <laughs> uh, what about you ben Spaceballs fan
1: yeah you know i am
2: no i was describing you
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it wasn't a question <laughs>
1: I'm just <laughs> sitting here picturing 40 year old Craig sitting there with his brandy, his smoking jacket, just <laughs> scoffing at space balls.
2: Pizza the Hut? Well, I'd never. <laughs> Such base humor. As I recall, there is a very <laughs> funny bit with John Hurt in a diner where the dancing yeah. frog from Warner Brothers bursts out of his chest.
1: No, it is an alien. It is the alien. But yeah. it dan- but does it the dances. same dance. It, right? it does yeah, the yeah, dance, yeah. Yeah. The top yeah, hat yeah. frog, yeah. So, I already knew the story going in, even though it was my first watch,
0: hmm. because it's, you know,
1: it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. It's everywhere in pop culture. But that didn't stop me from thoroughly enjoying it. Yay. It had everything you expect from a Mel Brooks film, the daft jokes, eccentric characters, absurd plot. The only difference being is that this has to be the Rolls Royce of Mel Brooks movies. And the 88-minute running time?
3: Mwah! Beautiful.
2: Perfect film runtime.
3: Yeah, Bon Appetit. Yeah, definitely.
2: It doesn't fuck about, does it? It like hits the and ground running. And as you say, plot is central and it just, everything that happens in it delivers a new piece of plot, which is great.
1: It's so economical in that way. Yeah. And as Gaz mentioned, the opening is just a way to do an opening. It gets you right yeah. in the film. You know what's going on.
2: Oh, yeah. It's a perfect example of show don't tell, right? Because you, you learn yeah. everything about max in that you don't need to be told yeah. any of it it's all yeah. shown yeah. to you yeah that's great. great
1: so it gets uh, if you're looking for a good time and the cinemaster isn't answering his phone then <laughs> you could do a lot worse than this film <laughs> out of five
2: nice well obviously I, I agree I've uh, chipped in a few times there and tipped my hand but one other thing that I would say about it is for a directorial debut and for a film with a very tight budget, it also looks great. It feels classy. And I know one of the things that drove Mel Brooks to do stuff like this is that he'd never considered himself a writer. He he was more of like an improv guy. He saw his credit as writer listed on a on a show that he did in the U.S., and wished that he was credited as a as something like a, a funny talker instead of a writer, <laughs> but it prompted him to go to the library and get a load of classic books and that's what made him want to write a novel, but ultimately you know, led to this he said that he didn't consider or he was worried that the world didn't consider what he did stand up and improv to be classy whereas writing is considered a classy profession and this has got to be one of the classiest comedies out there, you know, despite all the obviously uh, unclassy topics that it broaches because Mm -hmm. of the satire and it deals with all of those topics with class and I think it's a great looking film as well. It uses New York really well.
0: Yeah.
2: I think it's got to rank as one of the the more prestige comedies of all time. Let's talk about our favourite moments and lines from the producers. And let's start this time, please, with Ben.
1: One of my favourite moments, we discussed the opening sequence already, but in that opening sequence is the behaviour of Max's comb-over. It's just great. It becomes more and more (laughs) frantic throughout the opening.
2: (laughs) Sweaty comb-over. That's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? And Gaz, favourite
4: moment or sequence? Probably a piece of staging and direction by Mel Brooks, Mm. where Max is convincing Leo to go ahead with the scheme of finding a flop play to rip off a load of old ladies with and as Leo agrees to the scheme a large fountain erupts behind Mm. them, engulfing the entire screen Mm -hmm. I think quite a lot of the film is quite you can see how it would be a stage play but that is very, very filmic And quite spectacular. Yeah. I really, I really enjoy that moment. It's genuinely like, whoa, quite impressive. In an age of CG, that just water fountain going off is genuinely impressive to me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Was that just after the scene where Max has taken Leo around New
4: York? Yes. He says, I'll take you out for a, a meal. And he gets, and he gets, him gets a some hot, hot dogs. Dog
0: <laughs> yeah.
4: Al fresco, and they're on the merry-go-round
1: as well, on the same horse. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the fountain scene is the last one they shot, and it was really cathartic for Gene Wilder. This was his big break, and he'd been worried prior to this that, well, first of all, that people were laughing at his dramatic performances, uh, and also that he might get typecast as a character actor. I think he asked Mel Brooks about, you know people laughing at his dramatic performances because he was in something with mel brooks's future wife and mel brooks said you're funny you know you look funny you look like harper marx just embrace it Mm -hmm. he didn't want to audition for the producers but zero nostal insisted on it when he came into audition zero calmed his nerves by hugging him giving him a big kiss on the lips (laughs) they became fast friends uh, and remained friends after but the yeah, the, the fountain sequence being the last thing they shot, Gene Wilder described it as, you know, a kind of cathartic and like a sweet release from the, mm. the shoot. So mm. that's really cool. Fantastic. Yeah, it makes sense. And I'll say that my favourite sequence is the Hitler audition. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Have you ever heard the German band gag and song in particular, which is something that Will Ferrell gets to do in, in the remake? There's the LSD in the remake. He's the writer. What's his name? Oh, sorry. Um,
3: Franz Liebkind.
2: Yeah, Franz, yeah, and I can't remember what it's in reference to. I should have written the whole thing down. But there's a guy who who just in that sequence says to somebody, "You're sorry," and I just think the way he says it is brilliant. <laughs> 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 Cinemaster, your favourite sequence and line, I believe, are in the same sequence.
3: It's when they go looking for Franz Liebkin and they get to his building. <laughs> and they meet like the the caretaker or custodian, that woman. <laughs> It's just a laugh. But the way she says birds as well, she's trying to do like a New York. Boyds. But she doesn't quite do Boyds. She does Boyds. He keeps Boyds. I'm the concierge. I'm the concierge. He keeps (laughs) (laughs) Boyds. I was just howling and watching it. Oh, Jesus. So good. Yeah, that's amazing.
2: All right, well, since Cinemaster has brought us onto favourite lines, how about we hear from Ben next with a favourite line?
1: So right after they get the rights to the play from Franz, Max says to Leo, in the days to come, you'll see very little of me, for Max (laughs) Bialystok is launching himself into little old lady land.
4: Adieu, (laughs) avante. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Gaz, favourite line? It's just Gene Wilder, pretty much his first full scene when he gets his blue blanket out and Max <laughs> takes it <laughs> off and he...
0: My blanket, my blue blanket! <laughs> 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 and he's scratching yeah. on his <laughs> yeah. it's
4: mental. It really took me by surprise how childish this character was. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. I was instantly won over mm. by Gene Wilder's entire performance as this arrested development accountant
2: from that moment on. You need a performer like him to pull off a a role like that. Oh, he's great. One of the things that Gene Wilder said about his relationship with Zero actually is that he took him under his wing like a baby sparrow and I wonder if that's because of that performance he saw him as a kind of a vulnerable kid and wanted to look after him. Interesting. Yeah, yeah.
4: It's
1: crazy how loudly Zero shouts in Gene Wilder's ear. They genuinely like like centimetres away, just screams into his ear.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, he's deaf, isn't he? Because Hear No Evil, See No Evil is a documentary, right? I've got a a few favourite lines. Uh, Typical. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is the guy who sees Zero praying and he delivers a rebuttal to his prayer. Don't listen to him. He's crazy. (laughs) Just straight to God. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A great Max one. Do you know who I used to be? (laughs) (laughs) Classic. (laughs) (laughs) And then just one more, it would be when they uh, slip out of the play as they think it's failing and they go to the bar and he says, a round of drinks for everybody in the place and there's only one (laughs) other guy. Yeah. (laughs) In The Producers, sleazy producer Max Bialystok connives with unscrupulous accountant Leo Bloom to raise surplus funds for a musical so offensive and terrible it would have people packing up and leaving the theatre even before the first act is over, allowing the pair to pocket the cash. They retain the services of the ridiculous Nazi Franz Liebkind, whose play, Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Eva at Berchersgaden, seems like a surefire flop. The audience and critics respond as expected to the opening number, but as the hubristic pair slip away, the crowd begins to realize that flamboyant director Roger Debris has interpreted the play as a satire and beatnik lead Lorenzo Sandebois' star turn as a hippie Hitler goes down a sturm. <laughs> Did you notice, by the way, that Roger Debris is spelled like bris, like a bris? yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's my laughs> <little gag man. laughs> yeah. Ultimately, the show is a smash. The investors expect a huge return and the producers are found incredibly guilty of fraud and packed off to prison. <laughs> but how did the panel of peril rate their diabolical scheme? Was it a good concept? And how well was it pulled off? And let's start this time with Gaz. I'm not an accountant, <gasps> but it
4: seems like a good scheme to me to gather a shit ton of funds to immediately have the play closed, therefore not needing to presumably pay actors' rental fees to the theatre, etc. If that's something that's going to be missed by the Inland Revenue Service, then it seems like a, a good way of siphoning funds into one's own personal account. I'm inclined to agree with
2: Leo Bloom that it's a good plan. All right, and Cinemaster, what do you think?
3: They underestimated how popular Nazism
2: can be. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yes, I didn't take that. A into common care. mistake.
3: Uh,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's what the film is telling us. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I'm, I'm being light hearted.
3: <laughs> they didn't go offensive enough. Is is what the problem? And then obviously with Roger Dupree as well, he is flamboyant in. in Nature and he Mm. sort of sees something that Leo and Max don't initially, and he turns it, you know, from fool's gold into to real gold. So, yeah, it's a shame, really.
2: They're not privy to that, though, are they, until the opening night? Mm. So maybe lack of supervision is the problem there.
3: Yeah, for sure. That you know, they probably as well would have seen LSD's portrayal and thought, Jesus, this is probably horrific. But then maybe the more cultured. Broadway enthusiasts probably saw it as a bit of a departure from previous uh, productions and stuff, and that's why it went down such a storm.
2: Yeah. What do you think, Ben? Do you agree?
1: Yeah, I think the plan, as far as it goes, I think is a very good one. It's the classic tax write-off. Bloody Warner Brothers are doing it these days. You know, Mm -hmm. it still goes on today.
2: Mm -hmm. Got to get Bob Iger his fucking bonus from somewhere. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? (laughs) his next CP up. I mean, they're certainly not spending the money on special effects in Marvel movies anymore, are they? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the plan itself was very good. It, as you just alluded to there, Craig, it's the execution. Mm. For them to have not watched the, the play develop, if they'd have seen how what it was becoming, they'd have been able to sabotage it some way or another, but lack of supervision. Bit of their downfall there. Yeah. So I will give them a modest... Seven florets of broccoli.
2: Not bad. Yeah, I'm with you fellas. The plan is inspired, but the execution is deeply flawed. They needed to micromanage it like all good producers do. Get right in the director's face and fucking Mm -hmm. ruin his experience. (laughs)
1: <laughs> hire him to do something that he's really
3: good at but then don't let him do it insist <laughs> on constant rewrites exactly
2: right the producer's way <laughs> and what do we think of Leo and Max as villainous characters and um, what do we think I think we've already talked a bit about this but more so about G. Gmail what do we think about Zero and Mastel's portrayal as Max
1: gotta be some of the most lo- lovable rogues in film history haven't they right you can't help but root for them even though you know Max is ripping off old ladies you're still on his side yeah performance by Zero Mostel is incredible I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else no he just absolutely kills it in this film
2: he's perfect I know he's been in a version of Fiddler on the Roof but I don't know if it's the famous one probably not the famous one
4: I think it is no not Uh, the famous one was it not
2: Fiddler on the Piss I call it (laughs) Fiddler on the Piss no no (laughs) no sadly not uh, well, Cinemaster, do you have any, any different thoughts?
3: I think Zero Mostel's Max is demented. Uh, obviously, he's, mm-hmm. he's been driven insane by the lust for money, and he's completely off the wall. And then, obviously, that <sighs> lust for money helps him manipulate and turn Leo into somebody else as equally demented by cash and thinking he can do whatever he wants and that level of invincibility. Right. So, yeah, both excellent performances, both excellent, very crazy characters that just really carry the whole film.
2: Yeah. I'd agree with that. Gaz, similar thoughts?
4: Yeah, as I said earlier, uh, Gene Wilder is wonderfully kind of infantilised as mm-hmm. Leo Bleem and Zero Bestel, likewise, I I haven't seen him in anything else, but he is no. wonderfully hyphalleeting and yeah. sort of given airs and graces despite being quite low down and dirty like a top cat type character <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: <that's> yeah. My <laughs> very good,
4: yeah 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 he's brilliant he's not afraid to make himself look really stupid. Particularly yeah. one moment that I really love is during the opening credits, which are fantastic if you replicated those today in any kind of movie with the freeze frames. So those are the awesome opening credits. Yeah. But when, the second lady that he's romancing to get money from when he's pretending to be a mouse and she's the cat. <laughs> he's yeah. like brushing his ear and licking his paw and then she smacks <laughs> yeah. him on the ear, and he's, he's like, going, ah! And he pulls his scarf up over his ear to bandage it. Just absolutely incredible mind work. So, so funny. Um, yeah, I love them. I love them.
1: Yeah. That, that line as well is great in that, oh, Biali, did I hurt you? It's only a flesh wound, Lamp Chop.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so good. Well, he was Brooks's kind of first and only choice. He had to be talked into doing it, though. Oh, well. Wow. I think by his wife in the end. But for Leo, Mel Brooks really wanted Peter Sellers. And <laughs> uh, at one point, he, he said, I, I believe, kind of tentatively, that he would do it. And then just they completely lost contact. But he told Gene Wilder at some point subsequent to that, if this film ever gets funding, which is a big if, you got the part because he'd seen him in this other thing. And a long time later, when Gene Wilder apparently thought he either he'd been forgotten about or the film was in development hell and was never going anywhere, visited him in his dressing room, threw the script at him with the producer behind him <laughs> and said, haven't forgotten about you. The film's getting made. You're Leo Bloom. And it was his big break, apparently burst into tears. I love Gene Wilder. I love that story. It's so great. And Dustin Hoffman also was considered. But he wanted to play Liebkind. He really wanted to play (laughs) Liebkind. And (laughs) and Mel Brooks was like, no, God, no, you can't. (laughs) But as fortune would have it, he found out through his wife that Dustin Hoffman wanted to be in The Graduate Mm. but thought he'd never get it in a million years as it was written. But uh, obviously once they saw Dustin Hoffman in action, they kind of tailored it to him (laughs) and The rest is history. Oh, and uh, Peter Sellers, after the film had been made and the distributors were nervous about it, he held a private screening of it for him and his friends, said it was his biggest regret not being in it, and <laughs> called the studio in, until they relented and, and put it out. Mm, perfectly. Peter Sellers to thank in the end. Before we get to the competition round, if you're new to the podcast and you're enjoying it, Please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you can, but especially on Apple, because that's the best. It helps us keep making these, and keeps us from turning our hands to writing and producing the worst fucking musicals off 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 Broadway has ever seen. This is the part of the show where the Panel of Peril compete for the title of Season 4's Most Diabolical. Up for grabs is one point for each vote, which will go towards the series' leaderboard. Max and Leo hired a director known for a string of flops, an aging flower child to play Hitler, and an unhinged Nazi writer to craft the ultimate flop. But what would you have done differently, Ben?
1: So let me introduce to you the latest musical to hit off, 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 off Broadway, Hello Cookie. (laughs) It's a plodding journey through the short but incredibly technical history of web cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) From their debut checking whether visitors to the Netscape website had visited the site before, to the development of formal cookie specifications and beyond. It's five uninterrupted hours of nerds, song, and HTML. But rather than spoil the whole thing, I'm going to play you a snippet to wet your digital whistle. How I wish we could see if people had visited our site before. But sir, that's not possible. It can't be done science fiction (laughs) and it could never ever run wait just a minute this problem it may have us vexed but what what if we solved it with our dear old friend plain text with our dear old friend plain text (laughs) you text you must be mad Oh no We send them the text Then they send it right back (laughs) That might just work Make a model And test it Over the coming days (laughs) By God It's going to be a hit It's going to wow Shock and amaze We'll call them cookies Everyone will love them we're going to be rich. Oh, so very rich. <laughs> so very rich. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> oh, Lumantuli. Yes,
1: we love you truly.
0: Cookies are a gift, and for them.
1: We shall pay you duly. (laughs) Lulu Montuli, yes, we love you truly. Cookies are your gift and for them, we will pay you duly. Are you sure they're strictly necessary? Yes. I am sure (laughs) they are strictly, strictly necessary that I accept, but only because, only because they're strictly necessary,
0: (laughs) only because they're strictly necessary. (laughs) And there you have it. Wow.
4: Musical policy. Yeah. Through uh, internet um, information gathering.
3: Right. That's your first first song in a while. Took us on a journey.
2: Yeah, that's my uh, my one caveat, uh, my one concern about it is that. Was the internet around? In 1967. Well.
3: <laughs> I think it was just open, wasn't it? Open to, because mine, mine's not also based in 60s. It just said make a flop musical.
1: Didn't say set it in the 60s.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh. Leaphole. Mr. Leopold. I didn't say that. But however, when it came to it, I did adhere to that. I um... Because I thought that those rules were implied before we set it up where we said... "Oh,
3: If it ain't expressed, it ain't implied.
2: The original mandate for the show was with the tools at their disposal. So I thought it was implied by that. I
1: didn't put that together. I think there's an argument for that, fair enough. But I didn't put that together.
2: I think that I wouldn't hold it against you. I do. With extreme prejudice. So that wasn't what I was going to say anyway. What I was going to say is what I feel about that is it was edutainment and I found it very interesting. <laughs> I learned about things I didn't know about yeah. before. And I think I'll remember them because of the tunes and they're useful things to know in the modern age. Yeah. So my concern is far from a flop. Browser Cookies, the musical, will be a smash. Uh, That's what I'm worried about.
1: Oh, You also, whether you do know, realize it or not, you learned the inventor of Cookies Which was Lou Montuli.
2: Oh, yeah, I heard it. Lou Lou
1: Montuli.
3: Who will be paid duly. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I did find the idea of sitting through five hours of that quite... How many intervals? How many intervals? No. Uninterrupted. Five uninterrupted hours.
4: Uninterrupted. Toilet breaks. No. Doors locked. No, nothing. Jesus. But if it's seen as edutainment, people will because they feel that they have to,
2: to appear... Like they're willing to learn slash that they're intelligent. Speaking of slash, you can't stop people having toilet breaks by locking the doors. (laughs) Just go in your seat. (laughs) (laughs) Let's have Gaz's plan next, please.
4: We do not need a script writer for my Broadway flop. We do not need actors for my Broadway flop. We do not need costumes for my Broadway flop. All that we need is a small terrarium filled with various insects, a spotlight and a soundtrack. For my show is entitled The Insect Kingdom and tells the tale of a heroic grasshopper defending other grasshoppers, ladybirds, uh, worms and that against baddy insects like <laughs> cockroaches rhino beetles wasps and that there will be no dialogue only insect sounds to whit <laughs>
1: is oh, that a cicada?
4: That was a uh, something beetle. I couldn't quite see. This is catty did. Anyway, this is pretty annoying, eh? <laughs> People will leave in their droves, fall asleep, boo, throw tomatoes, the whole nine yards. We shall advertise the show with a poster in the mould of a Disney spectacular with smiling and frothamorphised bugs creating the impression of a real play. But the small prince will state the truth of the matter and indemnify us of any fraud, ensuring that our awful, awful show is the shit of the season and swiftly cancelled, leading us to carpet of the with the invested money and I'm finishing with wasps. That's just wasps. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So it's on the stage, it's like, an, like a big ant farm, but with like loads of different insects on it.
4: Yeah. Yeah. A terrarium. Is it like a big one? It's massive, and it is mic'd up to the gills. There are upwards of 13 microphones in front 13. of this Thirteen. Okay. And let me tell you, your eardrums are going to be shitting themselves.
1: Because I'm using one microphone right now. Mm. So times that by 13, mm. that's a lot of microphones.
4: Yeah. It's
2: going to be unbearable. It's
1: 12 more than I've got right now.
2: You don't even. So what I'm wondering is, mm. how much is a big terrarium? Ooh, yeah. Because like a modest one for your home is 200, 300 quid. Mm. Giant one for the stage. You're going to be burning through your budget.
4: Yeah. I reckon it's custom made as well, isn't it? It has to be. The example that's given at the start of the flop play that Max Bialystok has had at the start is $60,000 is the budget mm. that he spent on it. Mm. Mm. So if we work off that, I reckon you can easily just get a, a terrarium, 60000 mm. plus the insects, plus the microphones. It's got to be doable, surely, especially 1960s
2: money. Yeah, goes a long way, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. I think you could probably get somebody to write you an invoice for a terrarium that costs significantly less, but they they look
4: like they've charged you more for it. It's who you so, know, isn't it? Mm-hmm. you got no people in the insect biz. In the insect biz, biz, biz.
1: But I think there are a lot of people, particularly children, who are quite fascinated by insects.
4: Well, yes. In the short term, say, five, ten minutes, let's say. Yeah. If you stretch that time out to several hours... I think people's patients would wear considerably thinner. Yeah. Especially children. Especially children. And that word would spread. The same thing could happen with Max trying to, or purposefully annoying the critic with a bribe to give them a bad review. And that they would be the talk of the town in a bad way. Do not see this show. It is absolute garbage. It's just animal noises for hours on end. Insect noises.
3: Even if you're on the front seat, you can't see the insects moving around unless you really look really close and you've got a pair of binoculars.
2: Yeah, you could probably save money by not having any insects and just have some taped sound yeah. of insects like yeah. you did. There you go, and there. More and profit. Big box full of dirt.
3: Just have a, an LP of insect <laughs> sounds playing on the repeat.
2: BBC Sound Gallery. This dirt's getting expensive, actually. What if we just replace the dirt with a poster of some dirt? <laughs> there
1: you go <laughs> <laughs> well, what do we use in school is it crepe paper or something like that get a big yeah. line of crepe yeah. paper yeah, yeah. And,
2: exactly.
3: and pipe cleaners maybe
2: <laughs> for worms anyone else have any <laughs> uh, challenges for gans there uh, suitably boring pretty boring eh <laughs> and then we shall move on to the cinemaster
3: I'd just like to say, as a bit of a disclaimer, I don't hold any of these views at all, one or the other. I'm just saying them.
2: Uh, This is going to be massively racist.
3: Oh, shit. Well, you just have to wait and see.
2: Uh, If you've done the idea that I abandoned, which is the songbook of Anne Frank, we're going to cut it. (laughs) Peril pals, skip ahead three
4: minutes from now.
3: What are the most divisive taboo issues in the world today? Because that's what I'm going to use as the basis of my show. I'd say three of the most divisive issues are as follows. One, trans rights. Two, abortion. Three, 20 mile an hour speed limit in Wales. Four, (laughs) Brexit. The year is 2023. Frank and his wife, Debbie, are desperately unhappy. Not only do they not agree on Brexit, but they don't agree on COVID vaccinations. Debbie insists that people should live healthy lifestyles despite eating 10 beef burgers a day and drinking two bottles of Malbec. And that will prevent infection. (laughs) Frank doesn't see the harm in trusting a huge, money-obsessed corporation that have people's best interests at heart and are not reckless sociopath Burks. After receiving his fifth COVID vaccination... Frank develops breasts and the female reproductive system, (laughs) which he's surprisingly (laughs) accepting of. Despite misgivings and numerous shouts of, I told you so, Debbie is supportive. Frank wants to have a baby, but as Frank is now transgender, is not afforded IVF under the current system. So Frank drives at 20 miles an hour across Abergevenny to a doctor (laughs) operating out of a Meals on Wheels kebab
4: van bonus points for Abergavenny.
3: Unfortunately, <laughs> anti-trans protesters have seen Frank using his this dodgy service and tail Frank on the way home. Frank breaks the 20 mile an hour speed limit trying to flee the angry mob in their SUVs <laughs> and crashes into a lamppost at 25 miles an hour. <laughs> Frank awakes in hospital to find their unborn artificially insemination baby has been badly affected by the crash. <laughs> even just after conception in short times past. The doctor tells Frank the baby will be hideous and that really abortion is the only option. <laughs> God damn it, Frank, it's 20 mile an hour for a reason, shouts Debbie. <laughs> Again, because Frank is transgender, abortion seems a problem. Not only for the anti-abortion mob, but the anti-trans mob, who include people against the 20 mile an hour limit and the EU so they're dreadfully conflicted and somewhat confused. As some try to push Frank into the clinic and others push Frank back, someone shouts, If only we'd left the European Court of Human Rights, we wouldn't be in this mess. Another shouts, Women bodies are their own, even if a vaccination has changed them from a man into a woman. Watching from his four-horse-drawn hearse, carrying a coffin with a wreath, EU on it, Jacob Breesmog cackles with glee as he and his fellow time-travelling, funeral-directed chimney sweeps click their heels and dance down the (laughs) streets. And the title of this uh, production is Can I Be Frank About Driving at 20 While Suffering an Existential Crisis About Gender, Vax, Abortion and Europe in Denver When You're Dead?
4: First of all, I'd like to say Trans Lives Matter. Yes. And also, I would pay to see that play. And (laughs) so you failed because I would pay to see it. Good day, sir. (laughs) I would pay to sit next to Gaz watching that play, just watching his face. (laughs) I'd be like Max Cady watching that film in Cape Fear. (laughs) I set out
3: to try and offend everybody, essentially, and I wasn't trying to hold back. You know, even myself... I, I was offended as I wrote it, so...
4: Yes, yeah. we are ironic laughing, of course, Pearl Pearls, at how stupidly offensive it is.
3: Yes, that is it. <laughs> I definitely do not hold those opinions. It's all right, because that's just
1: going to be mostly like a long bleep, just going to be... 20 miles an hour, be...
3: <laughs> <laughs> People are just going to be outraged by it completely. And, you know, it's not going to be mm. it, one lobby or one group of people aren't going to go and see it above the others because it'll piss the other lot off because there'll be stuff in there they hate as well. And they'll be saying, this conflates that, blah, 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 and all this kind of shit. And there'll just be arguments and producers and stuff would get absolutely fucked for it. I put it to you
1: that the publicity that this would generate would spark the curiosity of quite a few people.
0: Yeah,
3: but I don't know because it's, but you know what it's like now? The theatre might refuse to stage it. Yeah, this is the thing. It's trial by media, regardless of whether something is. Do you know what I mean? If 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 there's if there's a weight of evidence against something or not, usually because somebody says something in the media, and then people jump on that particular bandwagon, rich and madly usually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: controversy
3: creates cash. You'd have an audience, but I think you wouldn't have a venue at the end of the day. I think what could possibly happen, although, and it wouldn't make the producers any money, is that this may go underground and it'll be like performed in speakeasies and things like
4: that, maybe. Oh, yeah. First rule of play club is you don't talk about play club.
3: (laughs) But those kind of things, it'd be like making moonshine. The producers won't get any money
4: from that.
2: Second rule of play club is you don't fucking talk about play club. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So now it's time for my plan, Craig's plan. Springtime for Hitler. It's sure to offend, but perhaps it's a bit on the nose. You need to go lightly with these things. After all, this fraud game is a dangerous one, and they don't want to end up in Sing Sing. To maximise the profits from Leo's scheme, Max needs investor confidence. His play needs to be reassuringly expensive, (laughs) and securing the rights to a high-profile contemporary book can kill those two birds with one stone. Max recalls the most offensive thing he's seen in the last five years, Mickey Rooney's turn as Mr. Uniyoshi in Breakfast at Tiffany's, and Inspiration Strikes. Before long, it's opening night at the James Theatre, and the marquee reads, CLUTTER! with an exclamation mark. You've guessed it! The prestige musical of the decade is an adaptation of Truman Capote's recently published novel, In Cold Blood, Recounting the true life, lives and deaths of the Clutter family from (laughs) Kansas, their community and their killers. In case you missed some of the lyrics there. Them farmers was churning butter, milking cows for cash. Now we gotta clean the clutter, because we made a splash on Broadway. Smith's knife slid across Herb's throat. He tapped out on the floor. In cold blood, I told Capote that we had the perfect score. Perry was the one who done it. I, Dick, meant no harm. But we're both on trial for murder. Soon, we'll buy the farm. And pretty much tells you the whole story of the terrible tale.
1: It's very good. It's kind of one of my favourite books as well, so I really got those references. I don't know the story or anything. That's incredible. It's very... It's one of those books that when you read it afterwards you feel a shift inside. Yeah. All that sadness has kind of been washed away with the
2: with the glamour and glitz of Broadway. <laughs> is it, though, washed away? Because what I thought was, I was still kind of horrified when I got to the end of it. <laughs> and I thought maybe everybody would be. I was thinking, God, I know this is an old murder, but do these do those wounds ever heal? A lot
3: of those people won't be alive anymore. Don't worry. Yeah, well, they they made they're making films about Ted Bundy, aren't they these days? So,
2: but I like Gaz. I, as we said earlier, I assumed that this was set in 1967, and this book came out in 1966, which is why I picked it.
1: Ah, uh, true. You'd be protesting yeah. oh, off the streets, yeah.
2: People would go, too soon! But they'd do jazz hands as well, and they'd be like, oh, what am I doing?
0: <laughs>
1: Your only <laughs> member of the audience yeah. would be Truman Capote, just yeah. sitting on <laughs> the front row, applauding.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Some truly diabolical schemes there. But who? will get the votes. So, first, we had Ben's... Cookie Monster, Dr. Gazarium's Clunker Terrarium, Cinemaster's Hot Potato Hot Mess Couples Therapy, and finally, my cold-blooded Capote car crash. Let's start with the Cinemaster.
3: Well, I've gone for this because I think the shock value at the time would be the nail in the coffin, so to speak. Pardon the pun. So I've gone for
2: Craig.
0: Oh,
3: yes. Mm.
2: He's fucked himself because I'm his competition at the moment. He's fucked himself. <laughs>
3: <laughs> hey, I vote, I vote with my heart, man.
2: <laughs> oh, meet it, I'm only joking. And uh, Dr. Gazerium, who have you voted for? I have also voted
4: for the best plan slash funniest plan. And I've done a very funny drawing for Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. It's like
2: a Minnesota Shrike horrendous murder scene.
1: (laughs) There's so much to unpack in that drawing.
2: And Bent, who have you voted for? Please, Bent. Well,
1: I've also voted with my heart. Sadly, my heart told me to vote for Quake.
0: It's
2: a clean sweep. And to make up for it, I have voted for Ah. It was a close
3: real close run thing.
2: Well, Gaz. Dr. Gazarium. Gaz. What's that done to the diabolical season four leaderboard?
4: Do you know? It's getting very, very close on the leaderboard. In the lead with 14 points is Craig. That's me. In second place. With 13 points is the Cinemaster. And that is I. Unlucky lucky for Sam. In third place with nine points is myself. That's you. And in fourth place with eight points Ooh. is Ben.
0: Oh,
2: holy shit. So one point between two sets. Mm-hmm. And then a huge rift between me and the Cinemaster. And then you guys. <laughs> That's exactly right. You losers. <laughs> <laughs> no that's cool going into uh, I'm confused about the order now but I think we're now into the we've done half of the season now yes yeah yeah 80 will be the finale of season 4 alright in a change to our regular schedule uh, uh, schedule next week Ben will be hosting what diabolical piece of cinema will we be taking a mulligan for
1: well craig i'm glad you asked next week i have chosen a film for us that i think we're all really going to enjoy it's often touted as the worst film ever made sounds good it is of course 2003's (laughs) the room
2: (laughs) and that wraps up this episode like a ticket wrapped in a hundo thank you for listening And if you were never crazy about Hitler, make sure you subscribe, hit the bell, and leave us a review on the very platform on which you're currently listening, or Apple, Apple, please. You can follow us on social mediums at DiabolicalPod, and next week, we'll be competing to improve on a diabolical plot of The Room. Until then, remember, don't forget Jackie!
4: Yeah, and if you don't subscribe and leave us reviews and stuff, that means that you do like Hitler.
1: Springtime for Hitler
2: and Journey <laughs> That's all the words we all know, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what did we say? I can fucking remember.
3: Stinky check up your ass. <laughs> Take your bikini
1: off. Don your best Nazi uniform. Make love to as many old women as you can.
2: Go to work, make the checkouts of cash, and let's get diabolical. <laughs> you can pl- splice that together, you lazy fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I like looking up.
1: You see loads of stuff. You know, dog, dogs can't look up. Yeah, I know. That's it's why I, I angle my dog. I've got a lift, a hydraulic
3: lift that tilts him like this. <laughs> Slowly. Like getting ready to just shoot it, to, yeah. the yeah. <laughs> <Once> it <laughs> to the moon. Yeah. But once it goes too far, he just slides off it and this, you know, the effect is lost. Oh, you don't strap it in? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't come with ratchet straps, they're they're optional. Uh yeah, so you know, I'm not willing to
4: fork out the extra five quid for ratchet straps. I've got spare right-shit straps if you need them. From oh, cheers. It's gone now. It's gone now. But we've got the straps. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm the king of the swingers. Oh, I'm a jungle VIP. I reached the top, but I had to stop and that's what's about on me. See, I want to be a man, man, come. Walk right into town. What I desire is man's red fire. I'm tired of monkey around. Oh,
2: shibby Pop, do it want to be like you Scooby dooby doo want to walk like you walk like you doo 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 Scooby Doo
1: like me super Doo want to be
2: someone
1: cheep. like you
2: doo